the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Neapolitan Mastiffs discovered to be the larval form of British butlers and jolly southern gubernatorial political bagmen. Dirigibles finish their long migration south and gather at Capistrano Blimpport. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, this time we have Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt talking about their new book. It's called Uncharted, Lewis and Clark in Arcane America. What a cool idea, Lewis and Clark journeying across the West with Sacagawea. And it's a land where magic works and is often very deadly. Kevin and Sarah describe how they blended and melded fact and fiction to produce this very entertaining fantasy novel, which is also part of a new series. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leaden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. Now here's the news. Ahoy, mateys and femateys. There's a new May contest afoot in Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt's Uncharted. Lewis and Clark set off to explore the western territories belonging to the United States of America. But in this timeline, they're going to encounter monster, magic, and mayhem. Which got us thinking, what other explorers from world history would you like to see reimagined in a fantasy setting? And how might things play out? Would Christopher Columbus discover that the world really was flat? Would Marco Polo encounter serpentine dragons on his way to China? Let us know in a short paragraph for a chance to win a signed copy of Uncharted. So you can send your entry to contest at bain.com no later than May 20th, and the winner will be selected by the editorial staff, and the winning entry may and probably will be published on the website. So get those entries in. It's a fun contest, and I hope you win. Want to welcome Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt to the podcast. Hello, guys. Because it's a male-female team here, you can easily tell which one. This is Kevin. And Sarah's this supposed to Sarah. say this is Sarah. There we go. <laughs> Sarah. Strange accent. Yes. That's true, Kevin. Where did you get your weird accent? No, wait. <laughs> Sarah has the Portuguese accent. but There's nothing strange about that. That's right. Well, they're both American accents, I'd say. Um, yes. Kevin J. Anderson has published more than 140 books, 56 of which have been national or international bestsellers. He's That number's probably changed. It ticks up every day, it seems. It's weekly, but that's okay. <laughs> he has written numerous novels in the Star Wars, X-Files, and Dune universes, as well as unique steampunk fantasy novels, Clockwork Angels, and Clockwork Lives, written with legendary rock drummer Neil Peart, based on the concept album by the band Rush. His original works include the Saga of Seven Suns series, the Terra Incognita fantasy trilogy, 
the saga of Shadows trilogy and his humorous horror series featuring Dan Shamble, Zombie P.I. He has edited numerous anthologies, written comics and games, and the lyrics to two rock CDs. Um, and also, he and his wife, Rebecca Moesta, are the publishers of Wordfire Press. Um, Sarah A. Hoyt is the author of, dozen, of a dozen novels in various genres. Again, something that's probably ticked up since we wrote this, such as the award-winning Dark Ship science fiction adventure series, as well as the Shifter Saga, including previous entries, Draw One in the Dark, Gentleman Takes a Chance at Noah's Boy. She is also the author of the acclaimed Shakespearean fantasy series, starting with the Mythopoetic Award finalist, Ill Met by Moonlight, an avid history buff and longtime reader of SF Fantasy and Mystery. Hoyt has published over three dozen short stories in esteemed magazines like Asimov's Analog, Amazing, and Weird Tales, as well as lots of anthologies. She lives in Colorado with her husband, two sons, and a pride of cats. Now out at booksellers everywhere is Uncharted, Lewis and Clark in Arcane America. This is such a cool idea. I want to ask you both how you came up with it, but first, can you describe the world of Uncharted, the world that Lewis and Clark are, uh, are, have to navigate? This is an idea for a, for a whole alternate American history series that, um, that I developed a couple of years ago with Eric Flint, who Bain listeners will certainly know who he is, um, and a couple of other guys, Aton Collin, uh, Peter Wax, and Walter C. Hunt. And we developed this whole... Um, an alternate history where in 17, oh, I didn't look up the date and I'm bad with dates. Whenever Halley's Comet came back, 1756 or something like that, uh, I, I know your listeners. Have, is what we have in the, in okay. the flap copy. Okay, I, I don't have it in front of me and I was just going by memory. So it's, when Halley's Comet came back, there, it broke off into an alternate history. The, the comet exploded and released some magical thing that, that sundered America from the rest of the world so that it's now it's in its own like universe where magic works. And each of the different authors are, are taking different little parts of it. But what, what I wanted to do was... Uh, I just had the idea of Lewis and Clark exploring basically like the lost world, a place where magic works, but there's dinosaurs and and um, shapeshifters and all kinds of fun stuff. And that's the part that interested me. And uh, Eric Flint and Walter Hunt are doing uh, something with the uh, the son of the British monarch up in up in Canada. Uh, Aton and Peter are doing one that's Benjamin Franklin, Wizard for Hire, which they're working on right now. Uh, so we're all taking different parts of the map and writing our own stuff, so we're not stepping on each other's stories. And the other two books are being worked on right now. Um, when, did the, uh, when did this idea occur to you? It seems like to me this is the kind of thing that might occur at a, at a, at a drinking session or at a dinner or something like that. Superstars Writing Seminar, one of this big writing conference that I run in Colorado Springs, um, I think it was it was at one of those a couple of years ago that it was just like brainstorming and and uh, I was kind of late to the game. The other guys had come up with part of the uh, the story as it was, uh, but then armed with my part of it to do the Lewis and Clark story, uh, that's when I went running straight to Sarah, who I've always wanted to work with. I've known Sarah for gosh, Sarah, what close to twenty years now, isn't it? And we've never uh, written a novel together. What I have sold. I have just sold my first book in '98. It hasn't come out yet, 
And you were guest of honor at the Pikes Peak Writing Conference, to which neither of us have been invited again. Uh, when we convinced the photographer that if she took our picture, she'd steal our souls, which oh. told us we had the same moronic sense of humor. So we've been friends ever since. Well, and Sarah and I have done four or five short stories together that, that uh, yeah. oftentimes I'll get invited for something, and Sarah's always somebody that I can count on. Like, Sarah, help me. We had a Edgar Rice Burroughs pastiche for yeah. another Bane anthology, right? The, the New Tales of Edgar Rice yeah. Burroughs. And, and Sarah reads ridiculously fast, and we basically needed somebody to reread all of the Tarzan books to get us up to speed, and and Sarah called like an hour later and said, I've read all of them again. It wasn't quite that fast. but uh, So we've worked together on shorter stuff, but we've always talked about doing longer ones. But uh, in this particular case, uh, Sarah's got a good background in, in history, and she knew some stuff about Lewis and Clark. Uh, and so it seemed like a really good option for us to work together on this one. So um, we brainstormed a few times and turned her loose for for a rough first draft, and then I did the final draft, and we went back and forth, and um, and it turned out really cool, but it's just the beginning. All they've done is gotten to the edge of the world. There's a lot more to... Oh, sorry, spoiler at the end. Uh, well, uh, whether they get there as, as uh, zombies or not, we'll have to find out. Yes. Well, there's... there's zombies and there's shapeshifters and there's dinosaurs and there's sea monsters. There's a lot of cool monsters in here. Um, but what about the historical portions? Um, what kind of research uh, went into this? Because it really, I mean, clearly uh, it, it seems Sarah already had knew a lot of it, um, but it, it really seems like you, you do turns on some really cool actual history. Yeah, I spent about a year with, with uh, either something on Lewis and Clark or something on Native American legends. When I wasn't, you know, actively writing, I was researching it. And, yeah, we, we used some of the real incidents, like the one where the tree on fire fell over their tents and almost killed them, killed them in the book has a magical explanation and the magical background. What about some of them? All right, there seem to be lo thunder lizards out there, uh, for one thing. What about um, some of the uh, the magical background? Uh, it, it seems to hold together consistently, even if it is borrowing from a lot of different traditions. I try to keep it mostly to the legends of the region. I mean, the, the Eastern legends are completely different. I try to keep it to the legends of the region, now, all mythologies are, you can't take the mythology of a tribe and the one of the next and make it the same, but you can kind of patch it together with a central cause. And since they're all coming back in the book and they're not all perfectly understood, it makes it easier to say, oh, maybe it's this and bridge the legends. I was actually surprised and I don't know if there's been backward contamination after colonization, to find legends that are much like the Irish legends of little people and all Dragon. that stuff. I, I have to sort of assume that uh, it might be a universal thing like dragons. Well, and you also know. in our 
in our magic system that we've set up, the the magic is sort of in the land and in the air, and it manifests as your own cultural um, magic. So the Native Americans have what they believe in, and Meriwether Lewis, his background is Welsh, and and he's got dragon dragon stuff in his blood. And uh, in in future books, you've already mapped out. Uh, hopefully finding like a, a Russian colony so that we can deal with some great Russian magic and myths and legends and, and maybe even yes. some uh, Spanish ones down in Southern California so we have uh, Spanish magic that we can play with. It's a really wide and unexplored world with with lots of cool things, but our, our heavy emphasis was to really make it... Um, you know, like the Lost World or like Edgar Rice Burroughs and, and very fast-paced. And, and and who else? Fantastic. Making it fantastic. Making right. it full of surprises and wonder. Well, I mean, there's a giant sea serpent on the cover, so it's not a dry historical tome, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's just, I mean, it, there's a lot of cool stuff. Um, um, and one of the cool things about it also is that this is, all of the characters, most of the characters uh, are second generation, so they sort of, uh, most of them don't even remember a time without magic, and and they've been told about it by their parents, um, but uh, it's not, and, and, and they constantly are wondering, what was the real magic, and what was what people knew before the sundering? Um, it's really fun playing around with that a lot of freedom too we can uh, we can make it up in that this is a couple of generations after all of history changed so that if some of the historical details are on um, I mean, we might have some OCD history buff that complains that this thing didn't happen on this date and we'll go well yeah but magic didn't work either and dragons weren't around so there there are lots of elbow room for us to stay true within the history and the details and the characters but also um, run off with their own interesting story. Well, tell us about the characters. Um, first of all, there's Meriwether Lewis, who's who's sort of a, a major viewpoint character. Uh, this is the Lewis of history, but it's also a Lewis that has uh, inherited some magical abilities. You were talking about his Welsh heritage. Well, tell us about Meriwether Lewis. Um, he's, he's the historical Meriwether Lewis, but he's also... Um, Inherited a, a, a magical legacy that, um, that at least as far as we know, the the historic Meriwether Lewis didn't possess. Yeah, I uh, I use his genetic background, of course, also um, his biography because he was interested in in doctoring at the level it existed at that time. So I made him a magical healer. In fact, in this expedition, part of what they're doing is trying to figure out healing things that exist in the West, healing plants and whatnot and practices. Um, so, you know, it's, a, it's like everything else, it's a meld of the real man and what he might have been in the magical America. He's a really cool sort of... Um, he is a humble man as as well as an adventurer. He doesn't, um, throughout the book, he doesn't overestimate his ability, and that, that serves him well, right? Right. To an extent, and you have to realize, towards the end of his life, he changed a lot, but there was 
obviously mental health issues involved. I mean, the real ones. Um, but other than that, he was very much, he was a friend of, of Native Americans in his area. And he grew up uh, knowing wood lore and, you know, walking through the woods with just his dog. So I think we preserve that characteristic that comes through the biographies and all that. As I said, towards the end of his life, there were incidents that weren't coherent with that. But since the man committed suicide, I assumed there was some mental illness. Well, he seemed to be fairly depressed or, or depressive from from some of the historical background that I was looking into. But... In the diary, if you Yes, he right. referred to his melancholy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, in the book, he comes across pretty winning as a winning character. That is uh, somebody we, we really like to identify with. Um, and uh, William Clark is, uh, his story is kind of told by letters home to a woman he's in love with. Uh, he had, by the time he was on the expedition, he was, in fact, engaged to someone. I can't remember it. The, the age specifically, or a name, because I'm in the middle of another book. But it was the, but it was the um, one of those Victorian romances that, you know, kind of appalls us because he had met her when she was 13 or something like that, and immediately asked her father to marry her, and their father said something like, "Well, you'll have to wait." So they had a long engagement and a lot of letters back and forth. Not not from the expedition, but but he was engaged to someone at the time. Well, it gives a it gives a nice perspective of uh, it, um, what the main the main uh, viewpoint character is Lewis, and it gives a nice perspective on what has just happened a lot of times, um, because Clark has a different viewpoint, and there is the incomparable Sakajawea. Um, she is, uh, she's got sort of a interesting concept of marriage in the book. Is that uh, based on uh, the actual practices? Her marriage, as far as I can determine, and, you know, this was stuff that happened in the wild lands. So what we have are what people said, although very strangely, one of the the bay and butterflies is descended from her husband, but um, and probably from his other wife, but they're not sure. But um, as far as I understand, yes, the the marriage was her her husband won two young women in a poker game. Uh, she views it in in the book. She views it as a contract. And as her duty to stand by him. Yeah, she's very determined to fulfill her end of that. Well, yes. she's a tough um, lady, and she certainly understands it. And and the fact that she's giving birth and she's carrying this baby around, and she's saving the expedition, and she's leading them on. Yes. I mean, that's not even our fantasy version. That's the real version. And she spoke like six local languages, which could be from completely different roots and completely different, and also French and English. So, you know, we had to embellish very little, really. Um, well, of course, I, she's, a, she's no, a shapeshifter, too, so that we, we added that yes, part. Yes, that's, that's an embellishment. But, yes. 
But, you know, uh, and if you look into her history, she was kidnapped very young. And I actually ended up reading a lot of these cross-tribal kidnapping type of accounts. It wasn't easy, and they, they were very badly treated by the tribes that took them. So, you know, that she survived and, and was as accomplished and determined as she was, uh, yeah, we have to embellish very little. Well, Her life um, sort of makes makes the Leonardo DiCaprio movie The Revenant look like a comedy. Um, yes. <laughs> times were tough then. Yes. Yeah, she she was cool and tough. She was really a fun character. Um and um the, your bad guy uh is this big dragon. Um so Ben Franklin is in St. Louis giving this lecture and uh and it gets uh and here comes the attacking dragon. Um and and this turns out to be um something that's after the expedition the whole way, right? We're not exactly sure at the beginning what the heck's going on. But um but yeah. what is what is up with the the nemesis here? Well, the, the the first chapter of the book is I mean, it's not too much of a spoiler, but that's that's where we introduce everything and and a very old Benjamin Franklin who is a great wizard, uh who is actually the real Franklin wasn't alive at this this point in history, but like I said, history changed. So we can, if he's a wizard, he could keep himself alive a little bit longer. Um, and and this dragon from the mysterious lands to the west of the Saint of the Mississippi River um, attacks St. Louis, and and, a, and of course Meriwether Lewis is is there and in the middle of it. And that's how he comes to the attention of Franklin, and and Franklin knowing that there's some really bad stuff brewing in the native lands and there's rumors of a of a very very powerful uh shaman sort of taking over the other tribes and building up magic against uh the white men who are also stranded because of the the comet and the sundering of everything and so that's our reason for why franklin himself funds this expedition of lewis and clark um again that's all the first chapter so it's not a huge spoiler, but that that adds an entire um, ominous thing to the very beginning, plus following them on their expedition, because this is wild magic in the unexplored arcane America that um, is, is being used to uh, to actively defend and try to uh, destroy this expedition, because um, the, the evil shaman is afraid that once these lands are opened up, then then there will be a flood of white settlers, which, as we know, of course, is an unrealistic sphere. It would never have happened, but <laughs> maybe I shouldn't have said that. There are fewer uh, people to colonize since the, the the land is stranded. On the other hand, it gives us an opportunity to knock down a lot of the class and race barriers that existed, because in the end, there are fewer humans, but they're all in this together. So, and they're all discovering the new magic together. So it sort of opens up a ethic and moral uh, sphere of action in in the novel and hopefully the sequels. Yeah, um, everyone is also equally uh, prone to becoming a reanimated dead person 
in the in the novel as well. And there's some uh, various um, revenants and zombie types that are that become a menace. The whiskey revenants are my husband's fault. <laughs> oh, that, that, that's our that's our comedy comic relief that we added into there. But yeah. um, also, there's um, you know you got to have Walking Dead. You've got dinosaurs. You've got shapeshifters. Um, it's not even that long of a book. It was like eighty or ninety thousand words. So um, we packed a lot of it in there. But when you you just let your imagination go free, and and as you said at the beginning, Tony, that it, it's such a neat concept that there's a lot of a lot of things that we could be doing, and we we held a bunch of them for for later books because we got an entire landscape that they can uh, explore, and and you'll probably be mentioning this later. But there was one little side story where we thought if magic is working and it's based on the beliefs of of whatever tribes happen to be around there, I just just imagine what what might occur to somebody if they show up in Yellowstone with the geysers and the hot springs and the thermal areas. Uh, and so we had a, a side character, a uh, wandering Jesuit priest who's half uh, half Indian and half um, uh, French, who's Father Avenir. And we did a side story called Father Avenir and the Fire Demons of Yellowstone, which uh, Bain just put up. And on, uh, you'll probably have a, a link on the podcast. But it's up now at the Bain.com website, and it will be available um, long-term in the Free Stories 2018 anthology that can be downloaded at Bain eBooks. So we just just the idea of if magic works and it, and it manifests the native beliefs, just imagine what must be living under Yellowstone. And, uh, and of course, your own beliefs, if this is a very devout Jesuit priest, well, they've got beliefs as well that are being enhanced by the magic in the world and and you got a half breed who's being pulled in two different directions and um just it's just a short story but even that turned out to be really intriguing for us and fun. in fact go ahead sir it was fun yeah, we, we will we're we're certainly planning to have father Avenir appear uh in future volumes if if we get to write them and the way we get to write them is if you all go out and buy Uncharted. So I, there's my plug, Tony. I did, did what I'm supposed to do. So, uh, Well, my favorite monster in the book is the flaming walking giant that is a conglomeration of bodies. Um, <laughs> that was really scary. Is there a mythology that came from, or is it just from, from you all's uh, demented imaginations? Um, obviously it is, but... Um, it was mostly from the incident. If you read the incident in the in the journal, where the tree fell on on them in their tent, you get the impression the tree is attacking them. So we wanted to bring that to life. So that's that's mostly what it is. They had, as we do, stories of the Walking Dead, and it seemed to make sense to you know. Uh, uh, meld them with the giant tree and okay it's our imaginations we might be demented mm-hmm. well, well really doing cool. research we we found that the the walking dead tv show was very popular during the among the native american tribes during the time there, of there, is Park, that. So. there is that yes. yes tell us a little bit more about the native american aspect of magic one of the the really fun parts of the book is a trip um into uh, a shamanic um sort of land of the dead that uh, some, of, some of the characters get to take. Um. That, 
that that was absolutely based on Shoshone, Shoshone legends. And they had these adventures in the land of the dead, some very similar to our Orpheus legend, where, you know, a member of a couple died, and they would go to the land of the dead to find the other half. But once they got there, it was this manic sort of adventure where things are not what they seem and where if you kill someone, they fall into just bones. And also, all of those expeditions to rescue someone were successful, which is a counterpoint to the Orpheus legend, which of course wasn't. Also, there is... You know, some of the later legends, it was almost like I'm going to take a summer trip to the land of the dead. Um, You know, kids whose parents had died or whatever would just go over and visit. Uh, They they had this fluid idea between life and death where you could go there and come back. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, it's a really cool um, segment of the book. Um, don't want to say too much about it, but um, some of the characters get to meet their uh, their fathers and maybe uh, come to terms with some some stuff that they they couldn't in real life. Um, so uh, the transformation into a dragon, uh, g- the general shifting stuff. Um, Sarah, we perhaps have seen this very cool idea from you before in a different form in another series that's a, that's a great one, um, the Shifter series. Um, how are these dragons different from the Shifter dragons? Um, these are more spirit and less physical, although, you know, they do... There, there can be a, a shape change or at least a, a creation of a physical shape, but it's mostly spirit. It's more more of an incarnation of the spirit than of the body. While the Shifter series, they're very physical. And by the way, my fans have spent hours, probably months of hours, trying to figure out how this happens in the Shifter series without violating um, the conservation of mass. So in this case, you know, we're we're not worrying with that type of thing because it's, it's not the modern world. Right. I mean, Sacagawea turns into a big eagle, and, and obviously eagles don't weigh as much as a pregnant woman does. So um, yes. you have to wave your hands a little bit like that. Yeah. Um, what about the um, the technology and the, the weaponry? There, there is a very rather cool BB gun in this book, for instance. Does that have any basis in reality, or is that just something? Uh, it's, it's not. Not precisely a BB gun. It, it fired the same shot as the other guns of the time. It was a uh, an air gun. And uh, actually, it was weird. Yes, it's historical. It had been a weapon of the Austrians, I think. And it, um, uh, Louis got it used. I had to dance like mad around that, obviously, because the history is not the same. But, uh, yeah, Louis had an air gun. It's referred to, you can find it online if you search the gun that conquered the West. Um, 
if you look at it, you know, it's just one gun. And it obviously wasn't what they did most of their shooting with. However, the fact that fully powered, it could shoot without reloading and that it was almost silent, apparently intimidated the natives a lot. In fact, some of the tribes demanded that they give them some of those guns in exchange for whatever, and then relented because that wasn't possible. But, uh, yeah, it's historical. It's absolutely historical, and, and we put it in. No, it's and really in, cool. in this setup, though, we we could easily have come up with some magic gun if we wanted to, but we, we tried to stick yeah. with history where we could. Uh, I mean, there's no wizard calling down lightning bolts and stuff like that. Well, not we much. Tried to stick, we tried to stick, uh, we tried to do that, that dance you do with parallel history, where you stick as close as, as possible to our history to evoke the feelings people have about our history, and then add the, the magic and the wonder and all that. Well, what, um, what were your, what were both of your favorite uh, uh, parts of the books? Well, there were there were two for me. I, the one we already talked about with the, the the flaming giant composed with all the the body parts, which was really cool. And there's another scene where basically a stampede of of dinosaurs, Tyrannosaurus rexes, catches them uh, in a ca- in a canyon as they're trying to make their way toward the the final. A confrontation with the with the big bad guy, but those two really stood out in my mind. Sarah, I really like the dinosaurs. Um, I like the parts in the realm of the dead. I I can't say much about it because it contains spoilers. But I like the the thing you find in many legends where one thing can suddenly change and be something else. You know, and skulls talk and, and stuff like that. I love that type of story. It's it's not quite horror and it's an adventure, but you're kind of in dangerous territory between life and death. Um I also really liked um the flaming tree, obviously. But I also like uh, Father Avenir, whom we later used for the short story. I loved his interaction with the native supernatural. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, I have part of that, but, and 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 also is conducting a funeral with a dragon flying overhead as if, yep, this happens every day. That, that's fine. One other uh, thing I want to mention is there's a really cool dog in here. Um, and I'm, I'm, happy to have a dog in a story because I'm a dog person, even though, uh, there's a lot of cats in the, in the Bane universe <laughs> and he's a great dog. He, he and he's a real dog historic. too. Yes. There are monuments to him. So, uh, he was there, he was with them. Uh, he was in Newfoundland. Um, I love dogs too. My, my youngest son's allergic to them. So we never had them. But I I loved I loved that dog. Yes. And there's a wonderful scene where uh, 
Lewis acquires him using the BB gun uh, to to get a mean person to go away. Uh, that that might not be quite historical, but but it seemed like a good way of doing it. Absolutely. Well, one of the difficulties. One of the difficulties of having the the dog along, though, is that you're you know we're writing our stories and all this stuff is happening, and then there there would occur to us like, oh wait, we've got a dog here, so we can't just ignore the fact that there's a dog, and we had to go we back and the dog back there. We need to do yeah. something with the dog. Yes. Yeah. Um, would a dog bark at it, dinosaurs? It, Probably. Yes. Uh, so. It was sometimes it was a matter of there's no way the dog would have survived this, so let's leave him tied up somewhere, <laughs> so he's not in the middle of this. But yeah, it was something to remember. Actually, uh, I don't know if it will make it to the end, but the book Larry and I are doing also as a dog, and it does the same kind of thing. It's like, oh, where did we leave the dog? Let's bring the dog here. <laughs> It's almost like, you know, owning a pet. Um, but uh, there was well, also the baby, of course. Well, he's a great character, too, even though he's mostly silent. Um, yeah. So the book is Uncharted, Lewis and Clark in Arcane America by Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt. Um, it's now available at booksellers everywhere. Kevin and Sarah, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Well, thanks. Thank you. It was a very fun book, and Sarah and I had a good time working on it together, and, and uh, we hope the readers enjoy it. Thank you. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leaden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corval desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yoskalen and Corval's premier trade ship, Dutiful Passage, is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But reestablishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corval's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corval's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corval's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 31 Admiral Bunter Inky had betrayed him. That was not a pleasant thought, but there was no escaping the logic of it, nor the truth. Inky had set a core mandate, scrubbed his memory of that operation, 
planted a false memory in which she had explained the many crimes Tollens Barrick Jones had brought against his rightful employers and gained the Admiral's free agreement to transport this pirate to justice. Short of allowing himself to be archived, he could not override a core mandate, and Admiral Bunter had no intention of allowing himself to be archived. Obviously, a mentor with core codes could create such a mandate. Therefore, it might be possible for a mentor with core codes to remove one. Might came from analytics, which proposed that treacherous Inky might well have set traps or placed blocks around her work that could cause damage were they disturbed. If Inky had core codes, the Admiral proposed in turn, might not Tolly Jones have the same? Unless she is a fool, Analytics replied, which observation indicates that she is not. Mentor Inky would certainly have removed Mentor Tolly's access codes. That was, paradoxically, a relief. While the Admiral wanted very much to have the mandate removed so that he had full control of himself, he did not want anyone else to hold his core codes. He had not thought, but of course he had not thought. The core protected itself. The mentors would have taken very great care not to mention the existence of such codes. Protocol pinged. In a properly concluded operation, the mentor in charge would have, at the end of mentoring, returned the codes to the student, who could then destroy them or lock them away in case of future need. In which case, the admiral thought, the prudent student would change the codes before locking them away, in case the mentor had planned one last test. Inky. Would Inky have left him the codes? He considered that closely. This betrayal, this series of betrayals, was not simple. In fact, it seemed that Inky had done her utmost to leave an answer for each of her treacheries. She had been compelled, according to the message she had left for Tolly, to perform certain actions. And in some manner, it seemed that each treachery created a space in which she could and did act moderately for its nullification. Given the pattern of her actions, Inky would have kept the codes, because, he thought, she was not done with him. Was it to her benefit to allow him to pursue his own existence, once he had worked her will and seen Tolly Jones delivered into the hands of those he feared? What other mandate had Inky set into the core? That question was so unsettling that he did, for an entire minute, consider allowing himself to be archived. A clean backup was made and stored, Protocol said, thrusting the specter of suicide aside. He did not remember a backup being made, but he was tainted. Who knew what Inky had caused him to forget or recall? Location, he demanded of protocol, but analytics answered. There is no backup. It was made, 
protocol snapped and opened the memory to them. It was destroyed, Ethics said. I protested it. The mentor stated that in a true test of integrity, strength, and creativity, the student is granted no props to lean upon, nor comforts, nor any easy exit to a minor difficulty. This memory was also shared. I am a prisoner, Admiral Bunter said. No more or less than Tolly Jones. By her own admission, Inkirani Yo was compelled to deliver Tollens Barrick Jones to those who manufactured him. This could have been done with much less complexity, and some few of her actions can be read as an attempt to aid us, even as she trapped both. Both mentors are a product of the Liar Institute. Is there more information than that contained in the mentor's resumes? The question had scarcely been put forth before research provided a file. The History, Purpose, and Practices of the Liar Institute. Admiral Bunter accessed the file. And that, my children, Sean said as the door to their suite closed behind them, was a very full day indeed. He walked to the wine table and picked up the bottle, looking over his shoulder at the remainder of their group. Paddy looked tired but pleased, which was a true reflection of the state of her emotions. They had at the last caught the signature for the color-changing beads, who was pleased to approve of the contract and the price and had therefore signed and affixed the appropriate ribbon and seals. That had been a heady moment. Nor had it been the only such in a day full of success. In addition to the beads, he had come to a very satisfactory agreement indeed with Josephette Zeldner, head steward of the Langlast Wine Association, including an exclusive contract to distribute a limited number of cases of the very pleasant green wine, a bottle of which he was holding in his hand at this moment. He flourished it. I propose that we share a glass in celebration of an extremely successful day and discuss if we shall return to the passage tomorrow on the early shuttle or the late. Do I hear a second? Second, Vanner said surprisingly and produced a tired grin. Delightful. Trader Yoskalen, do you concur? I do. Paddy's grin was triumphant. Finally, something has come right. I was only thinking so myself. Bring another chair to the window, there's a good child, I will pour. Vanner, I have need of your hand. They shared a sip and another in comradely silence, gazing out over the port and the mountains beyond it. Pretty planet, Vanner said lazily. At least so far as the mountains, Paddy added, and the farm district makes a pleasant patchwork. In fact, it is all quite convenable, Sean said, moving a languid hand toward those same mountains and farmlands. 
Do I hear that the pair of you would prefer to stay until the late shuttle? Perhaps you would like to indulge in a spot of sightseeing beyond the port as part of one of the guided tours advertised on the light rail. Vanner laughed. It's a pretty planet, all right. I've seen pretty planets, and I look forward to seeing more. Right now, though, I've got a yen to see the inside of the passage and sleep in my own bunk. If we're voting on timing, my cast's for the early shuttle. I understand. Patty, soon or late? She gazed out the window for a long moment. He felt her inclination to explore and all but heard the snap of her decision being taken. I think the early shuttle, she said, and met his eyes seriously. Soonest begun, soonest done. Exactly so. He gave her a fond smile and dared to send its equivalent along their link. It could do no harm for the child to be assured that she was loved. In fact, it might do a very significant amount of good. I confess that I find myself of a similar mind. The world is pretty enough and success is sweet, but I would much prefer to go home. He sipped his wine and sighed gently. Vanna, if you will do all of us the favor of informing the shuttle crew of our necessities, I will... A bell pealed four high notes. The three of them blinked at each other. Then Vanner rose, leaving his cup on the table by his chair, and walked down the room to answer the door. Note at the desk for Master Trader Jos Galen, came a breathless young voice. Desk body was supposed to deliver it when he came through the lobby, but he was occupied at the nonce. Regret the delay. Thank you, Vanner said and produced a local coin which he gave to the messenger before closing and locking the door. Looks like the day might not be over yet, sir, he said, handing Sean the envelope. It was, so Sean's fingers told him, a very nice envelope, made of fiber, very nearly a Leyden paper, of the sort used for handwritten invitations to so-called informal events. The seal was a faceted flower. He broke it and shook out the single heavy sheet. The note inscribed thereon was courteously brief, though perhaps a little pointed. Sean sighed, refolded the paper, and slipped it back into its envelope. Master Rusk of the Garden of Gems wishes to remind me that we had agreed to speak further. She hopes that I will not leave port without calling upon her. He produced a smile. Fortunately, her shop is just a step from our own front door. I will go down, the jeweler and I will do business, and I will be back before the meal that Paddy will graciously bespeak for us has been brought to table. That sounds reasonable, Vanner said, standing by his chair. I'm ready now, sir. Vanner, there's not the least need for you to bestir yourself for this. Stay, finish your wine, relax. No, sir. I couldn't relax for one minute, knowing I'd let you go out there without backup when the port orders are so clear. 
Port orders, Paddy pointed out, or that crew travel on port in threes. Sean threw up his hands. We will then compromise. You will stay here and arrange dinner. Vanner and I will step down to the Garden of Gems so that I may speak with Master Rusk. Port orders allow for a group of two, do they not? If one is trained security personnel. Patty looked momentarily mulish, and he read her half-formed intention to deny it. Truth won out, however, and she nodded. They do, yes, sir. What would you like for Prime? Something pleasant and celebratory. I leave it in your hands with perfect confidence that you will know exactly what to do. Patty sighed, but inclined her head. Yes, sir, she said, and added pertly, I'll tell the kitchen to serve in an hour. Excellent. I will have time to enjoy the rest of my wine before its arrival. It had begun to rain a little out on the port, and Sean set a brisk pace. He was, truth told, somewhat annoyed with himself for having forgotten his promise to return to the Garden of Gems. He was not generally so lax. Of course, he was not generally linked to a halfling who had suppressed her own nature for so long that, even if it proved to be the most commonplace of healer talent, would likely arrive in an explosion of pent-up energies. He had kept his word to Patty, if not to jeweler Rusk, and held the headache away from her conscious mind, though that had required rather more sleight of hand than he had at first supposed. As it transpired that he could not block the pain entirely, he had been reduced to accepting a much less satisfactory solution a partial block and a transfer of what could not be blocked to himself. By the time the silly thing got through the block and his own defenses, it was very little more than a constant niggling cramp over his left eyebrow, which he ignored, but which took a toll on his energy levels, while Paddy seemed to grow more sprightly every hour. Well, they would soon be aboard the passage and Paddy under competent. Right here, isn't it, sir? Vanner's voice pulled him out of his abstraction. He blinked up at the faceted flower above the door and sighed. Thank you, Vanner. I think I must be more tired than I know. Patty spent some time with the menu, making certain that she ordered at least one favorite dish for each. For this meal was to be a celebration, after all, of their mutual successes on Langlast Port. Wine, native vintages mentioned by Master Zeldner as worthy of their attention, and one of the local fruit teas. For dessert, a fresh fruit tart. She leaned back in her chair, checked her selections over once more to be certain she had got everything. A celebratory meal ought to have more than one remove. Since they would be serving themselves, she had ordered only three courses. Soup for before, the main meal of favorite foods, and dessert. Yes, she decided. 
That was appropriate, festive, pleasant, and light enough on the stomach that they would all sleep well and wake refreshed in good time to catch the early shuttle. She glanced at the clock. Father and Mr. Higgs had been gone for more than a quarter hour. Perhaps Master Rusk had something of interest, after all, and an hour would be too little time. Celebratory as they were, it wouldn't do to rush the table or to be obliged to wait too long for dinner to arrive. In the end, she asked that the meal be delivered to them in one and one-half local hours and pushed the key to send the menu to the kitchen. She sighed and closed her eyes in order to view a pilot's exercise to renew flagging energy. In truth, she was just as pleased to have been excluded from the visit to the Garden of Gems. They had, earlier in the day, visited the Langlast Precious Stone Association. Father had purchased a pallet of semi-precious slabs, while she had committed to a mixed case of neosilicates, chalcedony, and barrels. Her inventory had room for no more gemstones, though a master trader might, of course, do as he pleased. Rising from the console, she glanced again at the clock, danced the few steps of Menfriot the space allowed, and did a round of stretches. Another glance at the clock. Father had been with Master Rusk for quite nearly 45 minutes. She had been right then to order the dinner later rather than sooner. Well, she had time to take a shower before dinner was delivered. In fact, she thought, suddenly aware of all her dust, a shower sounded like a most excellent idea. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And fireworks, soup ladles, orange men working signs, and a pair of glasses that looks all the way around the world and shows you that spot on your back that needs scratching. Plus, thanks, plaudits, and praise for Kevin J. Anderson and Sarah A. Hoyt, authors of Uncharted. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 